we now come to our catechism lesson. We arrived at chapter number eight. And the way I want to start chapter eight, I want to start by providing a soliloquy by looking at Romans 11, 33 to 36, if you have your Bibles with you. It reads, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathom, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor? Verse 35, or who has first given to him that it will be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, I want you to consider what I've used in writing this soliloquy, but also bring your attention back to where we've come from with the first seven chapters of the standards. In chapter 1, section 1, we see it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will to the church. In section 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly said in the scriptures by which by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from the scripture. So that in section 7, the unlearned and the learned can know what it means to be sufficient in understanding them. You see, in chapter 1, we have the scripture established as our axiom. And by this, then, can we move on to section, chapter 2, where we have the Godhead defined. Chapter 2, section 3, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten or preceding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Ah, now that the ontological being of the God has been defined, we come to understand more as we will see God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever to come to pass. In chapter 3, where he understands his eternal decree. So by this, when we section into chapter 4, by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, in section 1, it pleased God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And being this great creator, we see in chapter 5, section 1 again, God, the great creator of all 
things, then upholds, then directs, then disposes, then governs all his creatures, all actions, and all things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. I use these words on purpose to direct your attention as we will now convey our attention to chapter 8. And think upon this with everything we've taken going from, from chapters 1 through chapter 5. We consider with such goodness and mercy he has for his creatures. God then goes and creates a covenant. We see this in chapter 7, section 2. The first covenant made with man was the covenant of works. Wherein what? Life was promised to Adam and him and his posterity upon the condition of perfect obedience. But what did we see? The command was set. God said to man in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, and I read to you, even the learned can understand the scriptures, as is the unlearned. So the Apostle Paul understood what transpired in the garden. Think about it. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, he states, The serpent deceived Eve by his trickery. And in the narrative continuing in Genesis 3, we know that Adam was with her and so then in chapter 6, section 1, we read from the divines. They state to us, our first parents being seduced by the, sub, 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 by the temptation of, of Satan, sin and eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit because he wanted to have purpose in order to have his own glory. What to his own glory that our parents, Adam and Eve, were to be seduced? Why? Because as Paul puts it in Romans 5, 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who we see now is a type of him who is to come. You see, brothers and sisters, I brought you this long soliloquy to one, bring your remembrance of why when the assistant pastors went through chapters one through seven, why they are important and why they were ordered the way they were. But we must understand that sinful estate and where our parents fell, we as their posterity, we took on the guilt of Adam. And so by natural generation,
by the command as God made, bless the earth and multiply and subdue it. Nevertheless, we perceive that every child born is conceived in sin. We have that same want of righteousness wherein Adam was created. We have that corruption of Adam's nature whereby he was indisposed, disabled, made opposite unto all that is spiritually good. He was inclined wholly to do evil. And he was banished from the garden. And so what transpired as to mankind lost communication with God. Mankind also incurred God's displeasure and God's curse. So then by nature, by natural generations, we are children of wrath. We are slaves to Satan and we are justly liable to all the punishments in this world. For inwardly, we have a blindness of mind. We have a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, a horror of conscience, vile affections. But then outwardly, the curse of God is upon the creatures for our own sake. And all other evils that befell us falls our own bodies. They're tormented. Our names can be tarnished. Our estates can be ruined. Our relations can be broken. And our employment can be torturous. All this together accumulated in death. But it just doesn't stop there. For in this world, we took those punishments. But what is to come? the everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and the most grievous torments in our soul and body as the confession will finish here without intermission and hell fire forever. So a new question should now be posed. Did God leave mankind to perish in this state of misery and sin? He did not. For... The confession standards state, which our parents fell by the breach of the covenant of works, by God's mere love and mercy, deliver, to deliver his elect out of it, he brings him into the estate of salvation by the second covenant, the covenant of grace. And God's grace is manifested in the covenant. For recall, when I brought to you Romans 5, 14, Note that Adam was just to show as a type of him who was to come. Who was to come? The second Adam. For in him, with all the elect as his seed, he freely provides and offers to sinners a mediator and life in salvation. For by him, requiring faith as a condition to interest them in him, the second Adam promises and gives his Holy Spirit to all the elect to work in them that faith with all saving graces and to enable them to what Adam couldn't do and that was holy obedience. And it's that's evidence of the truth of their own faith. And they have thankfulness to God for which God 
and his due time appointed them to salvation. So then, the new question is, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Ah, with that whole soliloquy, provided I gave you all the efforts, the analogies, the gravitas by which we know the Godhead, by which how to know the Godhead, to define the Godhead, we now come to understand our estate. And because of where our estate lies, we are in need of a mediator. And the only mediator that can do what can be done in the covenant of grace is our Lord Jesus Christ. For as we come in now into chapter 8, section 1, and I conclude with this, it pleased God in his internal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, the priest, the king, the head and savior of his church, the heir to all things, the judge of the world unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Oh, the depths and riches, both which of the wisdom and knowledge of God. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In the next coming lessons, we will be discussing more about the God-man. We will be seeing that second person of the Trinity and understand his humiliation and exaltation and why it was necessary. We will see and understand why he willingly took the office of being the mediator. We will understand the benefits as we see him both in the old and the new administration and how he again stands as the substance and all things pointed to him and when he arrived, everything was made by him and for him. But lastly, we must understand the redemption purchased by Christ and how it is certain, how it is effectual, and how it is communicated.